Well, I would normally say, hey, Harry, how's it going? But Harry has decided not to be with us today. He's out working on his golf game. And so it's just me, Colin, today, and great guest I'm excited to have on, Nick Tipman. Nick, how's it going? Hey, how's it going? Doing well, Colin. Pleasure to be here. Excited. Awesome. Well, we're excited to talk angel investing. And in particular, I think you know, you've know you got a unique POV on uh, vertical SaaS. So I'm, I'm eager to, to dip into that. We had a guest on a week or two back that talked about dev tools and DevOps, and we learned a ton about that. So we're, we're really excited to kind of get into more of some of these, like, I don't know if I call it niche, but, you know, very specific yeah. areas of like expertise and talk about it. And because there's, you know, I think vertical SaaS in particular, I know a little bit, I should, I should let on, I'm not a total, uh, don't know anything, <laughs> you know, it's become more popular recently. And I think, yes. uh, you know, fun time and topical to hit on it. So I'm going to do your quick bio and then we'll jump right into it. So just to introduce you to the audience, Nick is a you know operator and founder turned investor and advisor, similar to my path and things. He's currently an active angel in 50 plus startups and LP in a number of uh, leading emerging funds. He's also angel investing, he's specifically focused on early stage B2B vertical SaaS companies. But prior to that, when you know he was working and getting the W-2 paycheck here, Nick was the CMO and part of the founding team at uh, Greenlight Guru, a pioneer of the vertical SaaS model for med tech companies where they bootstrap from zero to tens of millions in ARR and raised 120 million from a top tier one PE firm in about 2021. So you've done it both. You've raised money, you've bootstrapped, you're like, you know, you might be the unicorn. <laughs> but prior to that, he uh, Nick was the founder of three startups that I think uh, didn't quite reach exit velocity, but probably really set you up for that fourth one in success. And Nick, he went to Indiana University and uh, lives in Indianapolis. Uh, though I don't want to give anything away. I've, I've heard tell that Austin is a line of sight and an interesting place uh, per your Twitter. So yeah, I don't know. I'm just, uh, I'm looking around. I've been in Indianapolis and Indiana for most of my life and uh, Greenlight was headquarters there and now uh, have some time to pull my head up and look around and kind of explore where I might want to live next. And there's a great, great community, great startup world in, in Austin. And I don't know that like the weather and I like what's going on down here. So we'll see. Nice. Yeah, we've loved Austin. We moved here almost five, six years ago. Uh, breakfast taco capital of the world. So that's like a personal favorite of mine and queso. So margaritas. I mean, there's, there's, there's a lot to love. All right. Well, let's jump into like we're gonna do our quick hitting questions that Harry usually does. So it'll be a little bit different, my flavor. But first of all, so we can get to know you a little bit better. How many evangelical investments you've done? We know 50 plus, but how many are you looking to do this year? Kind of cadence? What's your plan? Yeah, so I'm looking to do probably about 30 deals this year in total. Roughly comes out to about two, a little more than two a month right now. So yeah, I'm about, about halfway through that right now. So I've invested in about 15 companies so far this year. Oh, wow. So you're like ahead of schedule. Q, uh, Q1, Q2, you're like, you're pacing fast. I am pacing fast and I've got a lot moving with my, with my strategy. It's a fruitful time. I think of the market as people... You know your, your views on it, but it's an interesting time right now. And I think if you have the right head and, and stomach for it, I guess you could say, I think there's a lot of opportunity to be capitalized on right now. There's certainly a ton of deal flow, more than normal, I would say. And so that's exciting uh, from that perspective. And, and in terms of, you know, check size, what are you normally doing? What's your target? Yeah, so they're, they're definitely smaller checks, uh, typically three to, to 10K. I get a couple that are 25K and above, but really try to it averages out right around that 5k mark. Got it. And what, you know, in terms of, we know we focus on B2B vertical SaaS, but what kind of, what stage do you like? What's your sweet spot? 
Yeah, sweet spots, definitely probably the seed stage, uh, early stage, got a product, maybe a little bit of traction, really looking for a great founder market fit uh, at that stage. But really, we'll go all the way down into the, the pre-seed and up. Really, I've done some Series A, Series A plus uh, this year as well that I'm really excited about. But really try to keep that sweet spot in the early early stage or seed stage. That makes sense. Cool. So let's like dive into uh, the bread and butter, the, the vertical SaaS. Uh, maybe you can give us a little backstory. You know, what is vertical SaaS? Tell us a little bit about pioneering that model. And then uh, we can ask some more questions from there. Yeah, for sure. So vertical SaaS, as you mentioned, Colin, kind of kicking it off, it's uh, pretty hot right now. A lot of people talking about it. And really the, the way that I've seen it, and a lot of VCs have, have written about this, so you kind of software 1.0 mainframe, software 2.0 with SaaS, software 3.0 is kind of this end user product-led growth, Notion, Dropbox, Figma, and kind of software SaaS 4.0, really looking at, at vertical as kind of the future and really kind of the difference, the example that I like to use is Salesforce, kind of synonymous with CRM, the original horizontal company that's gone wide into, into all verticals versus Viva, which is kind of the quintessential uh, vertical SaaS company, which was healthcare specific CRM. And so those are kind of two really good examples of vertical SaaS and horizontal SaaS, both going after CRM. So I, I guess I should say that uh, Viva started as healthcare life science CRM, and now they've since branched off to be industry cloud for life science. But interesting take, they both started kind of with that wedge of of a uh, life science CRM. Got it. And so by vertical SaaS, it's like SaaS for a specific vertical. Uh, is that the kind of the yeah. exact definition, I guess? Yeah. To sum it up, tailored for a specific vertical or industry, whether that's automotive, healthcare, restaurants, you name it, barbershops. Got it. And so, you know, you kind of, as you kind of hinted there that like horizontal SaaS had kind of been the kind of the, the model, you know, and very similar to like marketplaces from that perspective, you know, a lot of the big marketplaces that popped up like eBay, you know, they were, they were horizontal. They went across many different verticals. They started a particular wedge, but they, you know, essentially carpeted the internet for a particular horizontal. So from that perspective, you had kind of mentioned before that there had been some reticence by um, investors and people to invest in vertical specific. Maybe talk us through like why that was and what do you think's changed such that people want to cut checks now? Yeah, absolutely. It's a great question. So really the first time that I've seen the, saw the vertical SaaS thesis publicized was by Gordon Ritter of Emergence Capital back in 2014, I believe. And that was right around the same time that Greenlight Guru was founded uh, towards the, the second half of 2013. And around that time, when you talk to a lot of VCs and when we were out talking to, to people, kind of the conventional wisdom or the, the, the normal knowledge of what you heard from VCs is that vertical SaaS is great. It's a great place to, to build a great business and to do a lot of good, but it's not big enough to support venture-sized businesses. And what I think has really changed since then to now, one, just the tremendous growth of cloud computing in general. But then two, a little bit of your, your background in marketplaces and fintech, but what these, what kind of these vertical SaaS winners have figured out like Toast and Shopify and MindBody is that they're able to layer fintech products onto their vertical SaaS platform. And kind of the holy grail of vertical SaaS is to become the system of record for that industry. Yeah. And then once you are the system of record, 
you can then layer on fintech products and start taking a, a cut rate of all the gym classes for MindBody or all the, the restaurant bills for Toast. And now that can represent 50, 60, 70% of the revenues for these public vertical SaaS companies. And now that VCs have seen that, and I, I think it was Andreessen Horowitz that first wrote the, the paper on this back in, I think like 20, 2020, somewhere around then, about how these companies were layering on FinTech products. And they kind of did the math and the research to show that you could now two to five X your average revenue per customer. And I think VCs and, and founders alike kind of saw that and have seen it come to fruition. And now here we are two, three years later, and uh, it's, it's a pretty hot sector. Interesting. I guess what you know, it's it's funny to think about it from a marketplace perspective because in a lot of ways, I feel like there are two ways of solving the same problem, but kind of coming to the same solution at the end, right? One is you know, you know, on the marketplace side, it's all about facilitating transactions. It's really about you know, like so connecting supply and demand, so really helping the business on the growth side. And then ultimately embedding deeper usually is what happens. What kind of what I call the marketplace plus model. It's like marketplace plus SaaS plus fintech. Whatever. It's add these things on to embed deeper with that, you know, either demand or the supply side customer, and then ultimately own their business, right? And so a lot of those SaaS products that get built are system of record kind of products. It's kind of interesting. I, I feel like it's two theses that are mm -hmm. like converging in the same spot, just coming at it from a different investment perspective of where, where do you start? Uh, and maybe it's not an investment, but just a different build perspective. Do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, I, I actually couldn't agree more. And I think Colin, you have all people with your expertise in the market have a really interesting perspective on this. And I, I really think you said it nicely there. It's almost like two sides of the same coin, just coming at it from different angles. There, there's a lot of people out there that call this vertical SaaS model really just SaaS plus rather than vertical SaaS because it, mm. it can happen in SMBs. SMB is very similar to vertical SaaS and most vertical SaaS actually start as SMBs. Yeah, no, it's fascinating. I, I like that this, it's almost like kind of expands my investment thesis. Like I've, I've tried to be pretty narrow into marketplaces and this marketplace plus model. And I, I'm liking to getting some validation that maybe it's okay to start on the SaaS side and work your way towards the marketplace. Cause I've seen a number of people doing that really successfully. And, you know, like you said, mind body acquiring class pass, you know, like in some ways that is kind of the, kind of the, the Holy grail, putting them two together and then you know, owning it all, you know, from an angel investing perspective and really, you know, any investing in the space kind of perspective, what are some of the things that you look for, you know, at the beginning, you know, you get the pitch deck, it, you know, there's obviously the financial terms of it, but you know, if you're trying to evaluate, is this going to be a good and successful vertical SaaS company? What do you look for? Really at the, at the early stage, pre-seed seed stage, you're really looking for founder market fit, or I'm, I'm looking for founder market fit. And I think that's particularly mm -hmm important in vertical SaaS where you are disrupting for a specific industry. So typically you, you need to have an additional role on the founding team. So you generally need a, a business person and you need the technology side, right? But in vertical SaaS, you also need the deep, deep technical subject matter expertise. So I'm looking for, has someone on the, on the founding team experienced this problem firsthand for five, 10, 20 plus years and knows the industry because uh, another benefit of the vertical SaaS model is that it's typically a winner take all model. Word of mouth does mm. really well. Customer acquisition costs are low because of that fact. And so if you're kind of already embedded in the, in the industry, not only does it help with the product, but it can help spread, kind of get those initial customers and help with reference selling, which also is very popular and does really well in the vertical SaaS model. 
So I guess to round, uh, that, to round that up, so, yeah, the, the uh, founder, yeah. founder market fit is really kind of to tie a bow on it, what I'm looking at the most. And then from there, kind of two, that's one, one A and one B, but then two is, is really the TAM. And what is their go-to-market, initial go-to-market strategy? What is their wedge? Are they getting traction with that wedge? What is the market dynamics around that industry? Is it a really laggard industry or is it a more modern industry that already is using SaaS products and is used to using modern cloud software? So there may not be as easy to disrupt and you may be going after incumbents versus so the TAM and then, yeah, kind of the, the market competitive look as well. Flipping over to Greenlight Guru, because I think there's probably some really interesting things you learn there, uh, doing the bootstrapping path, but then also going PE, which is not you know private equity for everyone out there. It's a little bit different than you know most of the companies we look at. People are angel investing and 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 then ultimately hoping for an exit from exit liquidity wise. So maybe talk to us a little bit about what what did you guys do? You know why did you choose bootstrapping and then ultimately PE? I just walk us through that. It's super interesting. Yeah. So. I mean, when, when Greenlight started out, we started out as a wedge, as a tool, and our founders, uh, John Spear and, and David Duran, and John Spear was that subject matter expert that had lived the problem for 10 plus years, and David was the experienced entrepreneur that had built and sold a company before and kind of brought, brought the CTO in, David or David Odemark, our CTO, and they kind of had that that magic team at the, at the beginning, and I kind of mentioned some of the the talks with with venture capitalists that we had there in the early days and that, that David and John had as well and some of the feedback that we got and we did raise uh, an initial seed round a 1.2 million dollar seed round uh, to get things kicked off off the way but then it was really from there that our decision at your traditional series A and your series B where we decided not to take the money because we really looked at our opportunity we looked at our the business we looked at the market we looked uh, just evaluated the, our, our situation scenario, looked at opportunities, threats, and we really just, we, we were growing very quickly, very fast, what, where we wanted to be. And we really didn't believe that the money and the dilution that we would take on would correspond to an accelerant in growth rate. So we were growing as fast as as we liked and we were profitable or at least break even. And so we were in control of our own destiny. The math didn't work for us. And so as our, our CEO, David Graham always likes to say, you kind of look at, look at the market, look at the conditions and, and figure out what our decision was based on that. And the, the, the market or the, the climate never looked right for us. And so we decided to keep on bootstrapping and until it did make sense to bring on that capital partner. And, and we did see a, a bigger opportunity and something that we could go attack that we did believe that having additional capital and a capital partner with someone that had done that before uh, was the right move and the right time to bring them on. Well, and you know, honestly, for anyone that invested in your pre-seed seed, you know, rounds, you not taking dilutive capital later. I mean, I'm sure they would love to follow on, but it's also great for them in some ways, right? Yeah, they, uh, they did extremely well. Yeah, I think, I think they're all, they're all very, very happy. Those were some good conversations that uh, David had got to have. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's the, you know, everyone we get to talk to on here is, you know, for the most part had some kind of exit or some success uh, in a startup and then ultimately has gotten into angel investing, mostly likely because they know startups and they've seen a pattern recognition from their own experience and they want to get back out there and kind of, I think, pay it forward, but also, you know, potentially get another home run without necessarily having to do all of the legwork to get there again, which is, uh, could age a someone a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> It is a lot. I don't see too many gray hairs, so you're good. Yeah. Um, it sounds like, you know, if I'm 
you know, looking at your experience, you had a great founding team with good founder market fit, you know, solving their own problem in some way. You know, there's a lot of what we hear. It's a common thread through a lot of investments is just having a problem of your own that you want to solve and a really good team behind it is really the recipe for success. So totally makes sense why your investment thesis is in line with that. Is there any times that you see kind of like evidence to the contrary or investments that you make to the contrary of that and, and why? In the contrary of outside of vertical SaaS or? Just just generally, I'm, I'm just always intrigued. I mean, because we do hear different opinions. Some people are very much idea focused versus founder focused at the early stages. And I'm just intrigued if, you know, do you make exceptions to the rule and uh, what gotcha. gets you to make those exceptions? Yeah, 100%. So when I started out, I started out angel investing about two years ago and really have slowly but surely kind of picked up my pace and picked up my speed. And when I resigned from Greenlight about six months ago now, that's that's really when I picked up my pace and really had some time to, to take some time off and really explore, like, what do I want to do with my next decade of my life or so? Mm-hmm. Do, do I want to go be a founder? Do I want to do that? But at the time, I was a lot more generalist, so it wasn't the vertical SaaS focus. B2B SaaS, definitely more broadly, go to market SaaS, but also marketplaces and fintech. And there's a lot really cool stuff happening in LATAM. And I really like what's going on over in India. But I think I was listening to one or two of these podcasts getting ready for this, Colin. I think someone, one of the previous guests said this too. And it felt a little bit like a fish out of water. Like that's fun. It's intellectually stimulating to know those deals, but I don't have the deep expertise that I feel like I can make quick, fast conviction, strong decisions quickly uh, in those other areas. Yeah. So it's fun. It's fun to see that. And it was really for the first 18 months there that I was investing, I really was looking at it as a learning experience as much as anything, trying to see as many deals and get as many patterns as I could. And I, I saw good deals and I, I think they're hot and I think they're going to do do well. But over time, I've, I've kind of narrowed in my focus and really started to develop conviction and, and an idea around a thesis. And now really want to get my name out there and kind of be known around vertical SaaS. So when those other top vertical SaaS founders are, are out raising, they, they can think of my name and kind of get a reputation for being helpful on the cap table as well. The go-to guy for vertical SaaS. And I can relate with that. I think when I first started angel investing, not when I first started, but when I really got more active in the last year around just looking at a lot more deals, doing a lot more, I started to kind of open my aperture, which was fine. I saw a lot of really interesting and good deals, like you said. It took me a minute to kind of get back to being confident and just, hey, you know what? You have an edge in one thing and you know it really well and you can go in and you can ask really smart questions quickly and make a decision quickly and have high confidence uh, interval around what you're doing. And so that has actually helped me sleep better at night, making investments in really early stage companies, right? And make sure I'm not just, you know, throwing money away. So I can relate is what I'm saying is that it's, you kind of take this uh, zig to zag to remind yourself that, you know, high conviction comes from like some level of expertise in something and, and knowing it and adding value, I think as well. Yeah, I think that's very, very well said. Kind of uh, expanding out, I'm always interested to hear, like, what's the quickest the deal's gone bad on you? Have you had any just, you know, you put in money and then 
they've gone out like what what does that look like knock on knock on wood here but no not not <laughs> yet the the, port, the portfolio is still still very young and and still early so every every company is still alive definitely had some do some extensions here and, and this year and all portfolios, I'm sure companies may not be all hitting the, the targets that they set out at the beginning of 2023 and kind of get kicked in the teeth there a little bit in Q1. But no, nothing catastrophic yet, but I'm, I'm sure they, they will come. I know that they, you, I will have them try to be ready when they do, but yeah, not, nothing yet. So we'll see. Well, that's good to hear. I'm not trying to jinx you in any way. In terms of these extensions, I, it's kind of a question I've been mulling over a lot is, what do you make of these, you know, pre-seed, seed, series A, any of these like plus or extension rounds? What's your what's your feeling on them? Are you open to them? Not open? What are you feeling? Yeah. Yeah. I was actually just having a, a conversation with a, another VC friend uh, about this. And I think it's, probably a little bit different from a VC perspective, but my, my own personal take on it, like, I really like them. I really like them or I really don't like them. I guess I should say <laughs> they're, they're kind of, they're kind of on the ends of the spectrum there on the, on the distribution curve, because what I typically see is that you're coming in with one or two scenarios, either one, the company's doing really well. They're growing really fast, maybe even faster than expected, but that means they're also burning faster than expected. Or the later stage markets are just closed right now. You can't raise that Series B, that Series C right now. So I'm seeing some really good companies go out and raise Series A extensions at what they raised at a year ago. The metrics are doubled, they're in a great place, and they're just trying to get to where they can open up to that later round. And that's really exciting to me. Those those kind of companies, I think, are some of the the best deals, and I, I think could potentially have some of the best returns in, in this vintage. Now, on the flip side of it, the bridge rounds because they didn't raise enough, they haven't found that product market fit. They're not being pulled up market, and they're still kind of going sideways or or worse. The easy way is like if they're trending down, and you're raising money to kind of save things, then that's a, that's a hard deal. And maybe that's kind of part of the cleaning process of, of kind of the, the free flowing money of the last couple of years getting out of the, the system. So we'll, we'll see, but if, if they're good and they're growing well, like I, I think they could be some of the, some of the best deals. And I really like them. I, I share the sentiment. I I'm, I'm with you on that. I think either they're not good, right. They're a bad signal or in a lot of ways, what I view them as is like everyone raised at elevated valuations pretty much in the last two years. And even if they have traction, the valuations are reset such that even at their current numbers, even if they had just done amazingly or really at the valuation they probably raised at previously. And so, yep. you know, one of the easiest, most expedient things to do is really just, you know, open these safes or whatever it may be and just raise on the pre-existing terms so that they're, you know, not putting a lot of like effort into like the legal part or, you know, really just opening a new round and what that means and setting evaluation, finding a lead on that. So there's an expediency thing here, which I think is important for a lot of people. But I also think in some ways they're just raising at the valuation they grew into, but raised at, you know, because the market was willing to do a higher rate earlier, they're just kind of grown into what they really probably should have raised at at this point anyway. I kind of view it as like their dollar cost averaging their raising. Right. Like, you know, not yeah. every point in the market has the same valuation. Right. So, you know, I think founders really get worried about this up round, down round. And it's like, well, there is a macro condition here that just changes everything. And you're just dollar cost averaging money into the company. Right. As you sell your equity. Yeah. Uh, so that's kind of how I think about it. I really like that. I think that's a, a great way, good framing to, to view it.
no, yeah, makes makes a ton of sense. So I, I think those companies that can dollar cost average in, and they're probably just raising at at their appropriate round. Like I, I do, I think there's some really good deals. I've seen some good deals kind of that fit in that category. And I think it's a good entry point for angels right now too, like because they're, they're people are a lot more open to essentially smaller checks and just really kind of getting money in the door faster. And so I'm I'm with you. I, I'm pretty excited about some of the opportunities I'm seeing out there, specifically in that area. So I don't view. I'm not like uh, we had a guest Kirk who just I think crossed the board kind of avoids them. But I think it's not a baby out with the bathwater from my perspective. Real quick before we dump in, I want to get one more back on the vertical SaaS side. So having gone through it and you've probably talked to a lot of vertical SaaS founders, is there any kind of specific advice you'd give them in terms of how they, you know, pitch, sell their company to, you know, angels and institutionals? I'm intrigued to understand if there's something nuanced there that, you know, you need to do it a little bit different than everything else. One of the things that, that I'm looking for, I don't need you to pitch me the big TAM now, but I need you to understand how you get to that, which also shows me that you understand the vertical SaaS model, which shows me kind of a lot of connections of the thinking that you have. But if you're coming in pitching it for what it is, and I don't see that bigger vision, and I ask leading questions to get around that bigger vision, and I'm not seeing that story, it's not a definite no. But it, it does kind of show me where the founder is and what sort of coaching they might need. It's something that I'm seeing a lot of, and it's maybe not a bad thing because these subject matter experts aren't always your typical SaaS founders that are marketplace founders that have grown up in the startup world and like eat, leave, breathe and live this stuff for the last decade plus like you and I have, but are coming into it because they see a real opportunity and they need a lot more education. That's a sign for me that I, know, I just read it for what it is, but they may need more education or we may need to talk or it, it may I may need to wait three, six months and kind of see, all right, that dot's here today. Where are they going to go? How fast can they learn and pick this up? So that, yeah, that's that's one thing that I'm kind of looking for at the at the early stage maybe it's a little nuanced to vertical SaaS. Yeah, I mean, if your requirement is in some ways to get someone that has expertise in this field, like really good founder market fit, you may be necessarily picking people that don't have a lot of tech experience, right, in building technology companies. And so wrapping a good team around them is probably pretty important. So that's interesting. Now let's flip to back to the angel investing side specifically and say, who are some of the angel investors that you look up to? Like who, who are you like, yes, that person, you should follow them and hear everything they have to say. It's a great question. The people, when, when I came up and when I started in the whole startup world, like the people that I read was Brad Feld, Mark Suster, Fred Wilson, like a lot of them aren't as active these days, but if you go back and read their archives and their blogs, there's a lot of really great stuff in there. And they talk a lot about angel investing too. And even a decade plus ago, they were doing a lot more early stage deals. So I think there's a lot of really great wisdom in what they're doing. I think from an angel or, or really the, the emerging fund market, I think is really interesting with a, a lot of emerging managers invested in a, in a handful. But I, I think people like go to market fund, the council, M25, uh, MK, MKT1, Ghana's venture, like there, there's a lot of them like that, that I think are doing really cool and interesting things that are 
I wouldn't call them super angels with the, the micro VC emerging fund manager space. I think is it Elad Gill that kind of, and, and kind of Hunter, Hunter Walk kind of were some of the early ones that pioneered this, this model, uh, smell over at Haystack. So yeah, those, those are some that, that I would take a look at, but they're, they're kind of di different stages of their, of their careers and perspectives on the, on the angel or the very early stage game. Interesting. I'm, I'm seeing more people that have you know with like rolling funds out of angels to like people calling it like an angel fund right you know like kind of an interesting like the, there seems to be a meshing in some ways of you know like micro small funds that at or syndications or you know syndicates plus fund yeah, there's just like a, it's kind of melding together a bit into a, a bit more interesting market of like how how can we just get capital to companies, right? What, you know, and not having these traditional lines, like, is it an institutional VC or is it just an angel? You know, they seem to be melting in my mind and hopefully for in a good way. Yeah, definitely. See, I think it's a, it's a good on-ramp with the, with the rolling funds into these funds as well. And I mean, I guess I, someone like, like go to market fund that's continued to raise bigger funds now. And I think to, to get up to there, but you're kind of seeing the, the gradual progression of a growing firm or a company there and, so I think you, you're, it's making it an easier entry point, I would say, to blur the lines to your point between the angel and those initial syndicate and rolling funds that kind of then grow on. Two-part question on this. So we've had a lot of guests tell us that like the best way to get into angel investing is LPing other funds or at least get up to speed. So two-part question. One, would you recommend that strategy LPing? And two, what do you look for in kind of an emerging manager uh, in one of these funds? One, yes, I think it is a really good strategy. It gives you, I think it's really helpful if you're not in the startup world too, in particular, to really understand the mechanics behind the scenes uh, a little bit. I do think if it was between making investments yourself and going out and finding deals and investing in an LP, I still think the better way to learn is to go out and do your own deals and get invest and get your hands dirty. If you're saying between the two, what's the better way? But it definitely is a good way. And I think if you're not ready to go do it yourself, it's a good stepping stone to get there. And then what am I looking for in some of these emerging fund managers? It's really a lot of the, it's kind of the same characteristics that you would look for in a startup founder. What's their vision? What's their mission? What's the GP's fit to the thesis? Is this someone that I can see building a large, great firm with multi-funds and that I could be in early? Do they have a good go-to-market motion? Are they out there? Are they getting good deals? What's their portfolio look like? Like, I, I mean, kind of standard VC stuff, but then also it's very much like angel investing in, in a way. Yeah, because they don't have a track record. I guess that's why I'm intrigued by, you know, what, what gets you to throw money in the pot other than liking angel investing. So you're investing somewhat in startup VCs, right? So. Yeah, I guess that to, to that point, I would say they have good GP thesis fit. And I know that they have access to top notch deals. And I'm not going to go go down all the examples here. But I, I think yeah. it, it really it really matters. Like if you have that network, you have that unique perspective, and you have access to those deals, it's kind of like the trifecta is are they a person that like, I want to be around in this investing space for the next 10 to 20 years as well. Like there's a little bit of the, the thought too. we're all kind of in this ecosystem and kind of the, the next wave of in investors here kind of going from that operator founder into the investing realm. And like, are they someone that I would want to share deals with? Like, do I trust their judgment? Yeah. So I, I don't know. It's, there's a lot of things, but 
it's very much like investing in an early stage startup and an early stage founder. No, totally. So what I'm hearing is, do you want to be stuck on a desert island with them? Is the uh, criteria? No, there's there's <laughs> part of it. There's part. Would I would I work? Yeah, for yeah. Them? I mean, I mean, it's the same thing. Like a founder. Like you, you ask yourself, like, would I work for this founder? Would I would I join this company? Like. Would I work for this GP? Would I join this firm? I mean, in many ways, you know, I, some of the advice I give founders when they're taking money from investors is you are getting married, essentially, you know, and divorce is painful. Are you ready for that? Are you committed to that? And so I just think, I think people take that a little bit lightly sometimes. So I, I like to hear that, like, that's a really, you know, key part of your assessment. Building a relationship is about the long run. And that needs to be like heavily weighted in everything you do. One little maybe uh, quote on yeah. that one. Then I, I someone said it recently, and it's, it was top of mind. But I'm trying to play long term games with long term people. I love that quote too. So on the subject of Twitter personalities and celebrities, we're kind of now right at time for our trending Twitter portion. And what we really want from you is some hot takes on this. So I tried to get some good ones. Nothing came out that was like super salacious and juicy, but we got some good ones. And so I will share for uh, everyone to see here and I'll read it off for you. And then I want you to dive right in. So this one's from uh, Kieran Hill is with 20VC. What makes the perfect angel? Asked a seasoned founder today and response was one, signs documents quickly. Two, don't only send links to emerging competitors. Three, don't be an asshole slash make life difficult. Four, better than me at one thing. You think this would be simple, right? crying or laughing emoji face with tears so nick what do you think did he hit the nail on the head do you have five six n numbers to add what what do you think well uh one i love number two that's hilarious don't only send links to emerging competitors i, I see that <laughs> and there there is an urge every time i see it so i think that that one's hilarious i really like be better at one thing to me i i think the a founder should look at angels the same way they would build an advisory board the same way they should build their executive team there's different angels that fill different roles and you need to assess your own capabilities your team capabilities and Plug the angels in where where you need. I think the other stuff of sign documents quickly, don't be an asshole, like maybe be better than me. Like it's it's table stakes, but I, I really look at it as like, what do you need on your team? You're you're putting together a group, and an angel is part of your group and part of your team. I love the uh, number two because I'm guilty of that at times, but I really try not to do it, only if it's interesting. Right. I, I the one thing I would say is like five. For me, having written uh, just a piece about you know taking small checks uh, last week, and the thing that stood out for me was really like the point of taking those small checks is like the money multiplier leverage that it can get. Like I would say, number five for me is: Are these people going to get you more intros, money, whatever it may be that you need? Like take money from people that are going to provide leverage for you operationally, financially, whatever it may be. That's the like that's the number one thing from an angel perspective. Obviously you like people that come in early and have high conviction, right? Like that's part of this, but they also probably need to bring some leverage for you. So that's the one way I think about it. Let's go on to the next one. This one is from Jesse Tinsley. We'll pop it up here. We haven't talked about YC yet, so I'm I'm excited to talk about this. So interesting observation. This YC batch is the strongest in the past three plus years. My hypothesis with less promising job prospects, some really amazing founders built great companies. Great time to be an angel investing and not a slight at any of the previous batches. So quick tinge of color here. One, definitely spouting the conventional wisdom that layoffs equal more amazing people working in startups. Don't know if that's true or not. Definitely is conventional wisdom, it seems at this point. 
and two, there's a lot of AI startups in the YC batch this year. What's your take? Do you uh, think it's the best one in three plus years? What's your feeling here? Yeah, I mean, I'll be totally honest and truthful. I I don't have the comparison to judge on the past batches to know where this one compares to the other. Building in, in Indiana for the last eight and a half years, pretty heads down. Checking out the new YC companies wasn't something that I've particularly kept up on. That being said, I have heard really great things. I have heard there's a lot of hot AI startups. I am invested in a couple call it micro funds that have other GPs out there just investing in this batch of really good things. Given all the macro and what you said about the, the founders and people getting laid off, I, I'll buy it. I'm, I'm buying. I, I, don't, I don't know if I have a lot to add, but I buy. <laughs> is, that, is that more because of the AI focus that you're liking it? Or, you know, like I, I know you kind of mentioned you've been looking more in that space. So just intrigued yeah. if, that, if that's a factor. It, it 100% is, is a factor. I mean, the fact ChatGPT came out in November and it is wildfire. Like it's changing the world. It is crazy how fast things are moving. And it's still interesting to see like what the defensibility model around a lot of these startups are going to be. So I'm not the AI expert. So I'm not like gun just out there blazing. I'm, I'm really trying to sit back and learn and put some money in some other GPs that, that do have more expertise in those areas. Well, that's the kind of the end of the show for us. We've gone through the, the trending Twitter threads. We appreciate your hot takes. We've loved having you on and thank you for educating us on vertical SaaS. I, I know I learned a lot from that. Last thing I would just ask is, do you got any uh, parting wisdom for angel investors out there, people looking to get started? What would be the one piece of advice you wish you had gotten? Get started earlier. It doesn't take a lot to get started with one, two, three K checks and it didn't have to be 20, 30, 40 K checks. So if you're interested in this stuff, there's a lot of way to get involved. You guys have had some great angel groups on here. Uh, Vitalize Angels was one that, that I'm in, involved in or as a member before. Like, but there's there's tons of great ones out there. So I would just say, get out there and get started earlier because your your learning will just compound. That's the call to action. I just it's just such a thread that like people can get started with smaller checks. I just it's. I agree. I, my main regret is not starting earlier and knowing I could do that. Cause I was like, you know, I was like 25 K check. I got to have a lot of conviction. I think as uh, Kirk said, spray and pray with small amounts of dollars can be really powerful. Granted, you know, do your due diligence, things like that. But the, the point being like, I just, the opportunity exists and you can't actually go out there and get good deal flow at small check sizes. So I appreciate that. All right, Nick, thanks for coming on and to get this up and published and out to the, the great angels out there. Awesome. Thanks so much for having me, Colin. And yeah, if you want to follow on, I'm on, on Twitter at uh, N Tipman and uh, on LinkedIn doing a 30 posts in 30 days. So if you want to come follow along uh, oh, wow. on LinkedIn at, at Nick Tipman. So would love to connect. All right. Instant follow and like.